Hello and welcome to the Digital Agenda Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Stokes, and in this new series, we will be exploring issues relating to technology in the modern world. We will hear from industry experts with recordings from this year's Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit. The insightful and thought-provoking discussions covered such diverse topics as data bias, the AI revolution, and profit for purpose. Welcome to episode three, The AI Revolution. Today, we will hear from Sana Karagani. She's the head of the UK government's Office for AI and Catherine Mayer, Executive Director at Datum Future. They're in conversation on stage at the Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit, and they'll be discussing whether AI will be a force for good or for evil and what the challenges and opportunities are. Now over to Catherine, introducing the session on stage at the summit. Thank you, Sana, for joining me. Um, This is kind of an exciting conversation for me. It's exciting and slightly surreal because they, they... First of all, I'm freezing. They described it as a fireside chat. (laughs) Where's the fire? Um, Now, I'm kind of thinking if I was an AI, I might really be confused by that. (laughs) Um, I'm also thinking that one of the things that's most interesting about your job is that you are, in a sense, heading up an office for something that doesn't quite exist yet. (laughs) That's very fair, yeah. (laughs) So... Before we really got into this, I thought it would be quite useful to talk to you not just about what the office is supposed to do, but really what we should understand by artificial intelligence at this point and what we might think about that understanding looking like in the future. So let's start easy then. Um, um, it's just hello, first of all. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm honoured to be here today. Um, I think, you know, I think one of the the issues or one of the things that um, sets us on possibly in in a a weird path is the fact that that I um, head up the Office for Artificial Intelligence. Um, I think using the word artificial intelligence gets everybody um, thinking about things like um, robots and, um, and I'm not going to say the word, but you know, the, the, the whole Hollywood kind of manifestation of what, of what artificial intelligence might look like. Whereas actually what, where we are today is um, we're talking about a very narrow piece of artificial intelligence, which I think would probably better be described as machine learning or even automation. But machine learning, I think, is the, the best way to describe most of the advances that have happened um, and that that people are reacting to nowadays. So in terms of artificial general intelligence, when you know we've actually got an ability to mimic intelligence that's more similar or, or closer to our own, I, I won't even wage, wager a guess on that, but um, scientists go anywhere from 20 to 100 years to never. So, I mean, um, I think there is uh, there's some, some time before we get there, um, if we get there. Yeah, no, um, 
uh, I think always really useful to to kind of understand what we are talking about here because some of the discussions of it and one of the interesting things I felt about this morning sessions was about the ways in which some of the discussions around technology are getting skewed and they're getting skewed by lack of understanding and also by real, very real concerns but mixed <coughs> with fears. So, so this notion of, of artificial intelligence is something that could rule us. Is, is quite a long way away. Yeah, I would say I would say so. I mean, I think I think that um, I, I totally agree with that that sentiment. In that um, there, I, I refer to it as this as, as a fear fog, which is um, not knowing exactly what to place your fear on, um, but just you know that there's something and it's not good and and you know and and it's potentially not good and it could it could resemble a number of different things. And I think that. You know, this is a—it's it, complex. It's big. It's—it's a, it's a whole host of technologies. First of all, it's not just one thing, um, and they're collectively being referred to as artificial intelligence. That complexity makes it difficult for us to know exactly what to expect and when to expect it. And I think that disconnect between what AI can do today, what these technologies can do today, versus what people think they might be able to do, is—is—is is, is quite. Far removed. Um, we spoke earlier, and I, I was talking about this uh, this picture that I've seen, which which always makes me laugh. But it's basically two images, and in one side of the image, on the left hand side, there's these two women, and they look very fearfully, and they're screaming at you know whatever kind of thing is is out of sight. Um, and and the caption under that says what people think AI is, right? And then on the other side is a picture of a cat. Um, sitting on a table, and there's a square box around the cat, as though um, you know the facial recognition is trying to tell what tell you what it is. And the green circle, and underneath it's captioned "dog," right? <laughs> and and that, and it says you know what AI is actually able to do, right? And so you know I think that that disconnect between kind of those two extremes is is a really it's it for me brings home why there's so much misunderstanding or miscommunication in the media and why the questions people are asking and the um, are skewed, right? Um, and, and perhaps the right questions aren't being asked. But in some ways, I think actually, when we're, when we're faced with questions like that, it, it makes you realize that m maybe we're not being very clear, and obviously we're not being very clear, and and there is a there's more clarity required here, and and it it's the onus is back on us to make sure not just you know in government in terms of how we speak about these things and communicate, but also with scientists and in industry, um, for people to be much more clear and transparent about how these technologies are being used and what they're being used for, which will help make that misunderstanding, make narrow that gap. Let's say. Um, again, a really useful point, and um, I think um, it would actually be helpful if I talk a little bit about where I'm coming from in this conversation, just because, you know, again, part of this morning, the discussion was also around where business, what business's role should be in this. You know, you talked about joining up that conversation between government, between civil society, science. You know, there, there are a lot of different stakeholders in this conversation and they don't all participate in the same ways, they don't all have the same access. And wider society, whatever that looks like, there's a huge problem of understanding and how people should understand 
um, both mediated by some of the problems, again, identified this morning about the way information is now um, shared and mistrusted uh, and, and other aspects of this. So I, um, Date and Future is a think tank that actually works with um, global businesses in order to confront the challenges of technology to recognize the opportunities, but understanding that you can't do one without the other and that all businesses these days are essentially data driven. But in some of the rest of my life, I'm also a campaigner. I co-founded the Women's Equality Party. And so one of the things that I bring into this conversation is not just a a very strong sense, again, something that Jacqueline talked about earlier, about the importance of diversity in, in creating these things um, and in data sets, which we will get onto. But the notion about um, what it is for tech to solve, uh, because for me, there is always this notion, um, the minister said before, um, that you know tech needs to solve the problems of society. But a lot of the problems created or exacerbated by tech are problems of society. They're problems of wider society. And nowhere does this seem to me sharper than with AI, where the machine learning is based on data that reflects society. So I'm really interested if we could um, look at some of the examples where machine learning or, or you know, other forms of AI are being used for good and where it's going wrong and why. I think that's a, that's a great lead into a, to a few, to a few different things. If I approach your question in two ways, so, so one, which is where can we use these AI technologies, right? Um, can we use them to solve big societal problems and then come back to kind of some, some use cases of, of where yeah. it works and doesn't work. My inclination is to say, yes, we can use um, these technologies to solve big societal problems, right? Um, because the ability for these technologies to crunch through an, an inordinate amount of data very quickly to, to be able to perceive answers that we as humans wouldn't be able to in one lifetime do is amazing, right? Um, they'd be able to, uh, like, you know, bring in data from multiple sources and be able to use patterns um, and historical pattern recognition, for example, to be able to tell us um, with a very high degree of certainty when a big weather front might hit, right? Like a big storm might come. There is some, some real power in things like that. Or if you take, you know, making sure that a hospital has the right blood types that it needs where, where it needs to be. Yes, people can do that level of analysis, but they might not be able to do it as quickly or as accurately. And getting blood to where it needs to be for anyone who's had a blood transfusion is, is, kind of, is very critical, right? So if, that, if that's a, you know, that's really a, a useful thing. Or if you think something massive like climate change, right? There is a number of areas where these technologies can help, right? Can they solve societal problems? No, right? There are I think there, the, the challenges that we have in society, we have to approach those challenges um, as, you know, here is a challenge that we have. Um, here's a number of areas where, uh, where, uh, where the, the, these are the types of solutions we would like to have. What bits of those solutions are technolo or can technology help with? And, and can part of that technology be 
technology be a data-driven um, technology or an AI technology um, that we can use within there. So I think that's the that's the kind of direction we should go, but not just for societal problems, for any problems, right? So if you're in, a, in an industry and it, it, we still have this place, we still we are still in a place where people think of AI as magic dust, right? And, and they say, well, we've got a solution to this thing. Um, now here, this AI thing everyone talks about, can we add a bit of AI to the solution that we've got? That's, that's not really the, the right way, right? So it's, it's about, I have an issue there, uh, and your issue could be pretty big, right? I need to lower my company's costs or whatever. Or I, I, in, a, in the public sector, I want to offer better public services. And then the question is, how do I offer better public services, right? Once you have decided that, that the end user, society actually needs those public services in the way that you're offering them, it's a question about what is it and what do they need? And then you decide whether or not AI technologies are one of the right things to use, right? So if I come down to the second bit of your question, you're absolutely right. I think what, what these technologies have done is very quickly hold a mirror up to us, right? Us as in people, uh, us as in uh, and our practices, um, and, and how we make decisions and, and, and therefore create data. I don't think that it would be contested to say that people are biased. We are all biased. You know, culturally, we carry bias inside us. That is just a norm of humans. Um, and we know we make, maybe we make bad decisions when we're tired, or we make better decisions in the morning when we wake up. You know, there's all sorts of different behavioral norms that humans have, and that manifests itself in data. And what AI has done, and what these machine learning algorithms have done, is they've learned from this data, and then they do something, and we go, oh my goodness, look at this algorithm, and look at what it did. Well, actually, the algorithm didn't do anything that, but to show that the issues that exist in that data. And, and to, to, hold a, to hold a mirror up. I think the, the problem arises if you kind of mass then produce an algorithm that you know to, is based on biased data or is behaving in a way that we don't want propagated. That becomes a problem, right? Because if you have a person who is biased, um, as say, as a judge, and they, they affect that one community, if you then base an AI algorithm on the data produced by that judge and you use it across the country, you're now affecting everyone, right? So the, the difference in terms of what our original kind of personal biases used to be able to do and what they potentially could do with these is, is magnified. And that's why it's so important for us to think about things such as fairness. Um, and, and there's a, lots of incredibly intelligent people, um, one of whom is sitting in the front row just there working for a company called Faculty, who look at fairness, right? Um, and the Turing Institute just across the street, safe and ethical AI and responsible AI, the research into these things, it still needs to continue because we haven't cracked that. And it isn't really a thing to crack that you can say, you know, we've solved fairness. Right, because it depends, <laughs> just like everything else. What are the, the values of fairness? So mathematically, you can solve fairness, but somebody needs to say, what, what are, what's the weightings? 
Well, to, to pick up on your point about the judge, there's um, some very well-known use cases around the use in judicial circumstances of algorithms to make decisions. And that's, again, based on this notion of artificial intelligence as something in some way separate from society and therefore impartial. Because in the States, I think there are 24 of the US states now use um, machine learning in the judicial process to decide on um, recidivism and you know whether people are likely to offend again in terms of their parole decisions. And what that has actually done is it has made it harder to understand those decisions, but in many cases, rather than eradicating racism, which is what they were trying to do because um, it was well known that black prisoners were more likely to be denied parole, in trying to avoid race as a characteristic, they've then gone for all sorts of other factors that actually replicate and in many ways make worse that same thing. So they're asking, have you ever been stopped by the police? Now, 90% of young black men in the States have been stopped by the police. And so taking that into the, the framework produces exactly the opposite effect. But it's, it's based on that kind of magic dust notion of what artificial intelligence is. Plus, I think, a rush to save money. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I think, so, so you're, you're right. I mean, I think there, there is, there, and that is under scrutiny, right? So there is a lot of people looking into that, right? A, a, a lot of um, very active researchers that are looking exactly at this problem. I, I, I do need to say, though, that if we can give the algorithms the right data if we can if we can teach them appropriately the what what fairness is right and we are straying now into into kind of uncharted territories right because i think what's really important here is that th this this notion of fairness and 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 if you think about data privacy and data security and all this kind of stuff it it matters across the board but it's very 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 important when you're thinking about or vitally important when you're thinking about healthcare or judicial systems. It, it doesn't even come into question when you're thinking about weather fronts, right? Or when you're thinking about some of the other use cases of these technologies, such as scheduling people's time, right? Doctors' times and, and rotas and stuff like that. Or even um, using satellite imaging to map out where people live to ensure they get the right level of aid delivered to them in the right places, right? So if you if you start to think about this as a sliding scale, you can say that, that the example you've given, you're absolutely right. There, It should be scrutinized and it should be looked at under the microscope and it, it should be looked at what sorts of consequences are coming out of this and, and how are you cleansing the data and, and how do you, you know, and, and at what level do you decide that that's fair and, and to, and to whose who's kind of concept of fairness, right? But at the other and level... And who's in the room and to, to, to make that, you know, because to, to think that that question is, a, is going to produce the right response, that was a human decision, that wasn't a machine learning decision. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, we're, we're now straying very quite quickly into kind of diversity of thought and diversity of, um, of data sets and, and, and all of those things, and, and that... That's one of the reasons that diversity is getting so much airtime, which I love, right? Um, and it's hugely important, um, and it's always been important to me as as um, 
as a as an ethnic, as my husband calls me, um, and he's he's not, so it's fine. <laughs> he, so as an as an ethnic computer science and mathematician, you know, I've I've uh, I've never been in the majority in in any part of my career or schooling, you know, and so this has always been a. Um, for me, a, an agenda, you know, to get more women into computer science or into maths, to 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 do as much as I personally can. So the fact that this now, um, you know, society is rising up and looking at this and seeing the consequences of the fact that we don't have enough computer scientists who are women, um, and seeing the results of that, I think is is a is great. Yeah, and and about all kinds of diversity. Um, uh, different kinds of women as well um but um i, they, I was at a, an event um very male dominated tech event quite rare these things um and um by the way did you see the queue for the women's toilet at the break that was really good <laughs> it was really bad but it was really good um but I was at this male-dominated tech event and um, somebody mentioned that a Japanese company had appointed an AI to the board of their company. And somebody else asked why, what was the AI going to contribute to the board? And I, I'm afraid I couldn't stop myself from heckling and I shouted diversity. <laughs> and one of the other few other women in the room shouted, soon the AIs will outnumber the women. Um, but I actually wondered... Um, this is a slightly random question, but do you think, you know, an, an AI on a board at this stage, is this, is this just a bit of um, marketing? I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I, they're talking, yes, or it's delivering tea up and down or, or, or vacuuming the floor. Um, I, I mean... I, or it, it is a, a terminal where, whereby they can use some data analysis um, and try to make some you know, proper data-driven decisions at, in, at board level, which would be fabulous. Um, you know, but but as, a, as a real you know, artificial general intelligence member and decision-making kind of entity on the board, no way. Yeah. <laughs> What I figured, but uh, but I again, I think this kind of impacts this whole discussion again because that again goes back to this notion of something that can operate independently. There was a very interesting conversation at, at Turing across the road, as you say, um, recently about managing AIs and that being needing to be part of a new skill set. Um, so. Well, this is so. This 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 is a nice segue into some of the work that we've been doing in the office for AI. You know, there's no question that there there's there will be a shift in terms of the the types of jobs and 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 what will be on offer. You know, in in the years to come. Uh, not only that, but um, in order to help with the diversity question, we need to allow. Uh, we need to uh, open wider the doors for people who can work on these technologies broader than just people with STEM backgrounds. So one way to um, increase diversity is to, um, to allow for non-STEM conversion courses. So one of the things, and this was um, Dame Wendy Hall who uh, wrote the AI review along with Jerem Presenti um, that set us on course to, to kind of having me here and, and all of the work that we've done over the past year. This is the, the, the single most closest thing to her heart, which was in the review that said, you know, having non-STEM conversion courses is, is hugely important and is, is one of the ways we can shift the dial on diversity. 
because as we spoke about earlier, artificial intelligence gives us this opportunity to be able to tackle big societal problems. Um, and you know, I cannot speak for for everyone. That ability to be able to do that and not so solve kind of very bounded problems seems to be a, a thing that attracts more women and more people. And so that ability to do that and if we can now give people a route in is a is a brilliant thing so what we announced in june is a 13 million pounds to create 2,500 new non-stem conversion courses um, and that also includes a thousand um, government funded scholarships for underrepresented members of society to to start using some of these technologies so they don't necessarily have to be data scientists or computer scientists engineers to be writing the the algorithms but people who can use them train the algorithms um, help create the cross-functional teams to make these algorithms more representative and and to do right by society that's hugely important and um, I know I was talking to somebody just now in the break who ha will be hoping that that demographic shift also includes older people um, uh, because that's a, an underrepresented group as well. Um, but one of the, the other things is, is, you know, in terms of having the office, having something that has that consistency that can work for these um, frameworks, these guidelines, set up these initiatives, um, you know, no matter what political turbulences are going on. Um, before we get on to the priorities for your office, let's let's look at uh, a few more of the sort of use cases and look at some of the positive ones. Um, there was, for example, just now in the Lancet Digital, the report about um, machine learning slightly outperforming doctors um, in diagnostic terms. But there was with that also criticism of some of the... the kinds of research that's going on around medical technologies. But there's clearly a huge area of potential within medical science for this. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me look at my cheat sheet so I've got some good new examples for you. But um, there are some, um, you know, there is, uh, there are a lot of different areas where, where AI makes, um, where technologies today are making a big difference. I think one I don't have to look at my cheat sheet for is, is one that most of you probably have, which is, or, or may have, is an iPhone, which um, uses your face to open. That, that's, that's a technology that kind of most people are using now, which is facial recognition technology um, used for good, right? Um, used in a way that, that stops us from writing our passwords down in a book that says passwords on it don't ever do that don't don't even buy those books I don't know why they make those but um, but some other examples of um, AI technology so we know about the the Moorfields eye hospital and the, the partnership they had with DeepMind um, so this is about training an algorithm to much more quickly than um, be able to recognize any and all eye diseases that you could potentially have there's uh, a lot around cancer and, and grading the levels of, of tumors, um, being able to um, look at radiology images and, and, and with a much higher accuracy than human um, doctors can tell you whether or not there's any tumors to be worried about. There's um, Microsoft's AI lab, the, the work they're doing there around then the, the technologies helping doctors cut these tumors out without taking as much, you know, live tissue along with it is absolutely incredible. So these advances that technologies are making in healthcare are 
completely revolutionary, like could really, really change the number of old people we have hanging around, which is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> but, and then we have to train them to do new things. Um, but no, I, I'm just... Put them to work. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a lot of examples of, of these technologies and what, what they can do. Again, I think healthcare on one end of the scale um, has this ability to either to, to put a bit of fear in people. But I think it's important to remember things like Babylon Health, which has been able to bring GP services to people who had never seen GPs in their life, right? Because it's allowed them to, using a, uh, using a telephone, interact with a GP. So there's, um, the, the, the value of these technologies has been incredible so far. Um, and I think that is the reason there is so much attention uh, and funding um, going into these areas from across the world. So um, let's let's talk about how we can... You talked again about fear around this, and, and obviously there is, um, you know, there's, there's concerns about the sorts of stuff we were talking about where there can be unintended consequences, and there's also privacy fears and um, the idea of job losses. What, in terms of your, what your office is doing, how... How are you confronting these and who are the stakeholders? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it would be wrong to say that there isn't worry, but I, I don't think that, it's, uh, that that worry is enough, it should be enough to stop us from um, getting the most out of these technologies. What it means is that we need to be pragmatic in the way that we approach innovation. What it means is that we need to have ethics at the at the center of, of, of the way we approach these. We need to have the end user and society in mind whenever um, these technologies are being used or deployed. Um, and if you if, if we think about, if I, if I refer to what our office is doing specifically, we are building the foundations in skills data and leadership to underpin the diffusion of these technologies in the private and the public sector for the betterment of society. So not just to make us more productive, not to make the economy better, but in order to make society better. So, uh, you know, in, in, in keeping that front and center at, at all times will help us make sure that we are approaching um, everything in a pragmatic way. So uh, in terms of you know, concrete examples to your question. We have created, and I, I, I understand that the minister talked about the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation. So this is a an organization that exists outside of government that is looking at the gaps that are appearing in these new technologies um, and making sure that we as policymakers uh, look at these gaps and are aware of them, but also that regulators are looking at these gaps and making sure that um, they are aware of them uh, in case new regulations are required. The, the center is, is, is a really interesting and, and innovative approach to doing this, but also really quite central to the way that the UK deals with innovation. And I'm going to use the word pragmatic again because it's, it's, it really is true. Um, we don't quash, you know, we don't kill innovation by, by immediately regulating it, but we do make sure that it is responsible innovation, right? We, we put the measures around it to help it grow in a way that we understand and that we're aware of what kind of consequences may, may come off the back of it. 
um, an example of a an, a sector that has gone a, along this journey quite a ways is uh, is fintech. So the FCA has created these regulatory sandboxes that allows innovation to happen in a safe environment before they go into production. There's a lot of learning that the regulators can have from each other, um, and and that they are um, pushing their learning. Each one of them pushing their learning um, forward. To, to make sure that they are in a place where they understand what these technologies can do. And also reforming themselves to make sure that it, rather than being a passive uh, regulator that gets involved at the end, that they are actively looking and being involved and understanding what innovations are affecting their sectors. So those are two two real things. And then on, on data, on skills, we have been working, um, so on data and access to data, we've been working with Open Data Institute. ODI, yeah. Yeah, um, with ODI on our data trust pilots, which is just the very beginning um, of these. On skills, we've done quite a lot of stuff around um, helping to make sure that the the we have the right pool of talent to meet the demand. Um, there's a huge demand for talent right now, um, and uh, supply was not matching it, which is why there's such a massive disparity in wages and things like that. So we've put in quite a lot of funding um, into the high end of skills. So there's uh, 100 million pounds of investment in 16 centers for doctoral training. Um, to to introduce a thousand PhDs by 2025, that was matched with another hundred million from industry. There was uh, an a, a brand new AI masters program that's created the STEM conversion, the um, non-STEM conversion courses that I spoke about earlier, and we've also um, committed 50 million pounds into attracting high-level talent. Um, attracting and retaining high-level talent. It takes a long time to grow your own talent, and we are working on that. But we also need to make sure that today we have the right people in the universities to help teach our PhD students. So that 50 million is going to attracting talent back into universities. So this doesn't mean that they have to be coming from abroad. This could be our own professors who have left and gone to work uh, for companies. And it's about attracting them back with uh, with packages and with research uh, funding to allow them to do some of that blue sky research and that thinking that is so important to ensure that these technologies become more robust um, than they are today. And need to be um, embedded again in those partnerships that you're talking about. So that was very interesting about the regulators being there for the journey as, a part, as opposed to at the end, similarly with the companies themselves that are using these technologies, that that's part of the development process. Um, I noticed that the time has slipped away quite fast. So, And I've got a couple of things I really still wanted to ask you about. Um, one, you mentioned ODI. Um, obviously, you know that where the data comes from is really critical to the success of, of AI, as indeed that those data sets are as complete as they can be. And there are lots of reasons why they're not. Can you, in a, <laughs> I'm afraid, rather short way, kind of address some of these issues? Because, you know, what models of data ownership are such a huge issue too? 
I mean, I think uh, there's there's no way. In a, in a couple of minutes, we can we can delve into the data question. But I th uh, there is there is there is definitely a lot in data that that needs to be looked at and reviewed, and, and continues to be looked at and reviewed. Um, and a lot of um, very intelligent people across the board looking. And I um, I implore everyone to get involved if you're not already to um, to talk about these things. Um, so uh, from a government perspective, we're doing something called the national data strategy. So the consultation is out. This is about mapping out the data landscape and understanding it a little bit better. So um, you know, what, what data do you have? What, what are the data rights that, that go with it? What are, the, what are the, the individual versus collective data rights? I'm not going to have time to, to talk about what those mean and what the differences are, or only to say there are a lot of institutions looking across this. Open Data Institute is one of them. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting area. And just like we spoke about use cases of AI having a scale, so, so too does data, right? So if we think about, you know, I, I was on a panel yesterday and somebody asked, um, is government going to mandate that all industry opens all its data sets in order to get AI to work? Um, and, and the answer is abs absolutely not. Um, there, there will be no mandating like in, in that way because that's not a requirement. And also I think it really, really matters what we're talking about, right? So if you look at on the one end of the scale, Transport for London opened its data sets and created an entire industry around itself like CityMapper. I don't know how many people use CityMapper to get here today. Yeah, still quite a few people, right? I think it's, a, it's an incredible, you know, it even tells you where to get on the, t which, which bit of the tube to get on so you're nearest the exit. It's brilliant, right? And, and it can only be done because Transport for London opened its data sets, right? Now, on the other end of the scale, you've got the NHS, where, where data privacy, data, data rights, data sharing, all of that, we need, to, we need to be absolutely certain under what conditions, with whom, for what reason, and for what length of time will this data be shared, right? And so there's a lot of questions and, and ethical questions and ethical considerations that take into place on the other end of the of the scale. And in the middle, you've got lots of fuzzy things like Netflix data, right? So you know, who knew that if if Netflix data Netflix opened its data sets, people would be able to use that to figure out who you are. There was no way I would have thought that that was possible, but yet it was. So that that's somewhere in the middle exists this area where um, very intelligent people can take those data sets and back out personal things about individuals. Well, that that starts to be gray, right? You start to say what what needs to happen. So there is a massive scale um, in terms of data, and it's 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 hard to talk about. <laughs> I suspect, luckily, that the next panel is going to grapple with quite a lot of this. So, um, because I uh, see Rachel elegantly loitering there, um, I'm just going to come to you for, for one last comment or ask. I believe yeah. that, you, that you sometimes like to end things with an ask. I do. Unusual for government, that. <laughs> so, I, I'm a civil servant. <laughs> I'm not evil. Um, so I... Oh, I certainly don't think you're evil. <laughs> I think, so I, and it's just, um, so yes, I do have an ask. So um, one of the things that we've done in the Office for AI is um, we have created the AI Council, which is um, a, an expert advisory group to help us in government two main things. One, help us deliver the priorities that we've set ourselves and the, the, the 
the work that we're doing today, but two, to um, horizon scan for us and make sure that we are concentrating on the, the, the right things going forward. These members uh, are cross across the AI ecosystem. They um, range from the public sector, the private sector, industry and civil society. Not all of them are technical, but we try to get a good cross section of people to allow them to give us that expertise um, that, that we need. They have, between them, decided that there are three main themes that they'd like to concentrate on. That is public perception, which we've been speaking about today, data, which we've spoken about today, and skills. So those are the three main themes that they have uh, organized themselves around. And these working groups are open to everyone. So please, um, and we have a call out right now for, for people to sign up and, and help us deliver some of the things that we've been speaking about today, but also to continue putting the UK um, as thought leaders in the world um, and, and making sure that our views around ethical and safe and responsible uses of AI are the ones that resonate and win out. So get involved, go on our Twitter feed, sign up and be part of our working groups, please. Thank you so much. Um, not only do I think that's a great ask, I think it's such a great ask. I signed up yesterday. <laughs> so thank you all very much and thank you, Sana. Thank you. And that's it. Thanks to Catherine and Sana for such an insightful fireside chat. AI was a hot topic at the summit as it looks into the heart of how we innovate and what it means to be human. We look forward to seeing how the necessity for successful AI development is balanced with the need for safeguarding regulation in the future. Next week, we'll be delving into regulation in more detail, examining how government can ensure innovation is done responsibly. The panel discussion will include Johnny Hugel, Head of Research at Venture Capital Firm Public, Heather Savory, who's the co-chair at the UN Global Working Group for Big Data, Cheryl Stevens, MBE, and she's the Deputy Director for Identity and Trust at the Department of Work and Pensions, and also Chris Thorpe, who's Head of Technology at CAST. Thanks again for tuning into the Digital Agenda podcast.